following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. But starting last week, Jude is, is getting out of just the warnings about what to be careful for and how to make sure your faith in your church isn't shipwrecked, and he's getting into what is the positive response to this. So we started talking about that last week. And really, we're going to continue doing that through the end of Jude, which I promise the series will end at some foreseeable point in the future. So verse 22 and 23 read as follows. Keep being kind to those who waver in this faith and convince those who doubt. Pursue those who are singed by the flames of God's wrath and bring them safely to him, snatching them out of the fire. Show mercy to others with fear, despising every garment soiled by the corruption of human flesh. So there's still some cautionary language in here, but Jude is giving a proactive plan on how to make sure that in the course of church life, the church that develops is part of this righteous vision of the kingdom of God that God has in mind. So Jude highlights three kinds of people in these two verses. And these are people who specifically are those in the church who have been influenced by false teachers, and as you'll see this unfold, they begin to live in a way that shows this influence. So Jude isn't talking here, by the way, about how to talk with those outside the church or interact with those outside the church or what even to expect of those outside the church. There's other places in the New Testament that talk about that. Jude, as best I understand here, is talking about within the church body, you're going to see these challenges arise, and how do we respond to it? And then ultimately, how do we use these challenges as an opportunity to walk with people toward Christ? So the first category is simply those who doubt or those who waver. Think of this as having a conversation with someone who says, I'm having a lot of questions about certain aspects of my faith. I'm wavering. I'm not sure if, if what I was taught was true. I'm hearing this new thing from whatever source, and I don't know what to do with it. And so, and I'm going to go into details in these, but the brief summary, Jude says, is be kind. I mean, be kind to someone who's wavering. Offer convincing truths. Depending on your translation, that's a little more clear in that portion of the verse. But step into their life in a way that's gentle and merciful and present to them the truth of the gospel. The second group he mentions is those whose doubt is leading to wrong actions. So they've been wavering internally. But now it's gone beyond that. Now they're going down a wavering path instead of a righteous path. And when Jude uses this language of snatching people from the fire, just think of it, um, and once again, we'll get into some more detail on this, but you follow them and you pull them back from the direction that they were going. And then finally, his last category is those who wavered, and then they started down this path but now they're trying to get other people to go down this path with them. So they're saying, not only am I, am I heading in this unrighteous direction, but they're trying to pull you along and take you down with them. And Jude says here, once again, show mercy, but do it with great caution. The, the word fear, it might be translated differently in your Bible, depending what translation you're using. But be cautious. And the image he uses is that, I mean, even their clothes kind of are... Uh, they're toxic. They're infectious. Just being in their presence, you run the risk of picking something up. Language that makes more sense in a COVID world than it might have six months ago. So before I get into the detail of each of those categories, I want to see if I can give three analogies of how we might see this play out just in ordinary life. These analogies won't be perfect because they never are 
but they're going to be close. All right, so the first I'm going to go with is that of a hot-headed basketball player. I coached basketball for a while. So let's say I have a, a kid on the team, and I know that this player is just prone to anger. So I'm watching as they're playing, and they don't get a couple calls, and you could see that the other team is jabbing them with their elbows and talking trash to them, and I could see something's building. So I'm going to get this player's attention, and I'm going to be like, Billy, just settle Back away, like I'm mouthing all the right things and making the motions. <sighs> Take a deep breath, like uh, he's wavering. He's, I'm not sure where this is going to go, but there's a temptation kind of in front of him. I'm, okay, so gentle, I get his attention. To inner battle, we're, we're being careful. Well, then the next call just goes really terribly wrong. And I could see Billy's face turn red. And you can just tell by body language at this point, he's about to get a T. He's about to go off on somebody. So I call a timeout, and I yank him off the floor. I, I pull him out of the referee fire. And I go, dude, you need to sit down for a little bit. I'm your friend here. I'm taking you out of a situation that was going to get you kicked out of the game and embarrass you publicly. I'm intervening now because I, I love you. So I'm in his face. Right, but I, I, it's an act of mercy and care that I'm doing this. Okay, but let's just say Billy doesn't handle that well, and now he's sitting on the bench, and he's muttering, and he's, he's swearing. He's getting the whole bench agitated. Now they're all getting mad at the refs and the other team, and now he's polluting the team, and that's the time when Billy heads to the locker room because I, I can't have that on my bench. Right? It's going to pollute the bench. It's going to poison the bench. And it doesn't mean I've given up on Billy. It just means right now Billy's infectious. And what he's affecting people with isn't a good thing at all. So we're going to talk later, Billy and I. But at that point, the best thing I can do, both for him and for my team, is to create a little bit of social distance between Billy and everybody else. So scenario number two, my college roommate. And I don't actually have a college roommate because I'm not in college, but let's go back 30 years. And let's say 30 years ago, COVID was a thing. And I'm sitting in my room with my college friend one day, and he goes, listen, I'm thinking about going to this concert. It's this great venue. venue. It's just a tiny room, and it's going to be packed with hundreds of people, and we're going to sing along at the top of our voice for about three hours. Uh, and it's a COVID hotspot, I know, but you're just going to do it. What do you think? All right, he's wavering. He's having an inner battle about what to do, so I'm going to be gentle. And I'm going to weigh in, and I'm going to go, um, it's, it's Billy still. Billy, it's a bad idea. <laughs> don't, don't do that, man. I know you're thinking about it, but, but don't do it. Um, you could get sick, but then you know when you come back to the dorm, like they're going to make you create some space that this isn't going to go well. So a couple hours later, Billy says, you know what? I've decided I've called an Uber to go to the concert. But well, now Billy's my friend. And I'm like, yeah, Billy, I canceled your Uber. Right? This inner struggle that you were having about whether to make a good or bad decision became you making a bad decision. And so now I'm going to pull you out of the concert fire, and I'm going to put myself in a place in your life where I'm going to help and intervene and make the good choices that you couldn't and help you make them. But Billy sneaks out. And he spends three hours at a packed concert full of people who are coughing and sneezing and singing at the top of their lungs. And then he comes back, and now the problem is he's polluting the dorm. So I forgot to tell you, I'm also in charge of the dorm. What's that called? Uh, the, I'm an RA. Um, Billy got to a room with an RA. 
And now I'm like, uh, Billy, dude, you got to quarantine. Now we got to go space because you went further with it. And now you run the risk of bringing in this infection that's going to spread. And I'm going to pray for his health. I might even help him pay for his doctor visit because he's my friend. But he can't live in the dorm for a while because of the quarantine issue. So three levels of escalation. Here's my third one that has more to do with church life. Let's say you're talking with someone who once again just says, listen, I'm, I'm struggling with how to balance, say, my freedom in Christ and my responsibility in Christ. I'm not sure what to do with it. Uh, I, I don't, don't quite know what to do with these passages and I'm hearing all these different voices. Okay, awesome. Uh, this is good space to be gentle and we talk and we pray and we look at Scripture and maybe we have a small group or we're bouncing ideas off of each other. Honestly, I, I think we do this all the time in the course of church life for lots of different issues. But then let's say Billy says to me once again, you know, I'm thinking about going to Vegas for a week because I think I just want to see, I, I think my freedom means freedom to do anything I want. So I just want to go to Vegas. I'm going to do everything I want to do for a week. Well, now that inner battle about how to balance Christian freedom and responsibility, that wavering thought is leading him down a wavering path. And I'm still Billy's friend through all these years. It's inexplicable at this point. And I go, Billy, I'm your friend, dude, and I take his car keys and um, whatever. I intervene or I go, you know what, if you're going, I'm going with you so that I know I can be right there and I can snatch him from the Vegas fire as often as I need to because now it's more of a forceful intervention because it's not just thoughts bouncing around in his head and it's not just an internal struggle. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead him toward the fire. So Billy goes, okay, that's, that's fine. Give me my keys back. And then uh, I see him walking out the door a couple days later, and I go, where are you going, Billy? He says, actually, I got a bunch of friends from church to go with me. We're all going to Vegas. Okay, dude, now you're toxic. Now it's not just you and your personal struggle, and it's not just you and potentially you making some bad decisions. You're trying to draw other people from the body of Christ into your plans, and it looks like you're going to take other people down with you. And Billy, I still love you, but dude, this isn't going to work. So these are the three categories I believe Jude is talking about. And as we explore them, something to keep in mind is that I think Jude is talking about that within the course of church life, people are in very different places. So I don't think there is a template on how to apply these approaches to a particular person you might be thinking of right now. Uh, so I can't tell you exactly what to do there, but it's just showing you that we need God's wisdom to discern where people are at so that we know what the best way is to intervene into their lives. So Jude's not offering a one-size-fits-all approach. He's, in some ways, he's saying discern the body of Christ. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago when it came to communion? Discern the body of Christ. And if you see people in these situations, uh, pray for wisdom that you know what the best way is to respond to them. So I'm going to look a little more in depth with these three things. When we finish, once again, I'm not going to tell you that one size fits all and that everything applies to every person. This is something you have to pray for wisdom for. But just be aware that it's in God's plan that part of church life is that we get to represent God faithfully in other people's lives. And as you'll see as we walk through these, point them toward Christ continually over and over again. Point them toward Christ. All right. Those who are wavering. First category. Jude is clear. Just show uh, mercy. Show patience. 
I'm going to try to do this again. Cause, hey, look at that. I've gotten more coordinated in the last 15 minutes. So Jude just says, show mercy and patience. Someone who's wavering inside, it can, e- it can be easy, I think, to get frustrated. And someone says, I'm really struggling with this thing in my faith. And we want to just throw arguments at them or, or we want to give platitudes to them because maybe it makes us uncomfortable to, to know someone's there. But notice Jude leads with a relational quality. Show mercy and show kindness. That has something to do with presence. I mean, it, it's certainly not less than words, but it's also more than words. This is, I think, if we go to another biblical analogy, this is the bruised reed that we don't want to break. I believe it's Isaiah that talks about that. So, once again, depending on your translation, it'll show up. It's clear that part of what we do being present is give them convincing reasons that points them back toward truth. Because we're not just there to be nice. Uh, niceness includes truth. In fact, if someone's wavering and you don't offer them truth, I don't think you're being kind or merciful to them. <laughs> that's actually being counterproductive. But there's something about presence that's very, very important. We have received God's unmerited mercy in our lives. We pass on this mercy to others who are wavering. There's a commentator named William Barclay. I'm going to quote a couple times this morning because I really liked his summaries of these different categories. He said it's this way. Study to be able to defend the faith and to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We must know what we believe so we can meet error with truth. And we must make ourselves able to defend the faith in such a way that our graciousness and sincerity may win others to it. This doesn't mean, by the way, that all of us in this room have to be experts on every nuance of biblical discussion. It may mean you have a conversation with someone and you say, all right, I'm not sure what to do with this. Why don't you talk to this person over here? Or give me time to to read up on it, to study my Bible and what other peoples are saying. But part of the beauty of having a church community is that you can pull from the community to help you in any given situation. But the basic idea is someone comes to you, they're wavering, you show mercy and patience, and you offer them truth. The second category is those who are being singed by the fire. Pretty much every pastor and commentator I read agreed this is going back to an image from Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 4. So Zechariah is writing to the children of Israel, and he's kind of exposing to them how God feels and thinks about situations. And so in the previous chapters, he's building some different kind of analogies and stories for them to get a hold of. So this is one having to do with Joshua. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, kind of similar to the way the book of Job starts. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, this is Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? So that's going to be our imagery for this particular kind of person, but let's finish it because there's imagery that continues for the third category. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. That's your filthy clothes analogy, and I will put rich garments on you. Right, so we're going to come back to the clothes analogy in the third section. But this 
current section is about this fire imagery. And this even goes further back to the prophet Amos, who, writing on behalf of God, said this to the children of Israel, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, and yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So this is the imagery for this second category of people. And you see, even in the Sodom and Gomorrah example, it's not just talking about eternal judgment. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah was kind of a real-time unfolding of judgment. And God says, listen, I am snatching you away from even real-time kind of fire. And then you'll notice in that verse when God says, and yet you haven't returned to me, the idea is I'm doing this so you can return to me. And this is what Jude is talking about, that there comes a point where we see that people around us are moving into citizenship in Sodom and Gomorrah or Babylon, or Rome. You can choose a lot of cities that are imagery in the Bible, but you see that they're starting to shift their citizenship and allegiance, and they're going to a place upon which God's judgment is going to fall. And so Jude says, uh, actually, in this case, you don't push those people away. You don't say, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Jude says, you pursue them. You go after them. And we actually get the privilege of acting on behalf of God as an instrument in pulling them away from the direction of the fire. Um, little kids are a great analogy, and if you saw the prayer request this week, uh, there's a reason why we talk about this. When you make a fire, um, if you see your toddler accidentally toddling toward that fire, um, you grab them and pull them away because you know the consequence of what will happen if their steps continue to take them in that direction. I think it's the same thing Jude's talking about. We can look around and we could see, listen, if your steps take you there, the fire's coming. And because I love you, I'm not content to sit and simply watch that happen. So this is William Barclay once again about this category of person. They've actually started out on the wrong way and have to be stopped, as it were, forcibly, and even against their will. It's all very well to say we must leave a man to his freedom and that he has a right to do what he likes. All these things are in one sense true, but there are times when a man must be even forcibly saved from himself. So I think that's what Jude's talking about. We've already, we've already established the first foundation. People only move that direction when they've been wavering, and we've already established kindness, mercy, and grace, and we offer truth. And, and so I think the idea is here we're already invested in people and we've been present with them in a way that reveals the heart and the truth of God and now we see it's not having an impact. They're heading toward the fire and because we still love them and because it's still an act of grace, we go after them and we intervene. I've told stories before from this pulpit so I'm not gonna tell them again but of times in my life, especially when I was younger, when I had friends who literally did that they wouldn't leave my side because they knew that the plans I had were going to singe me in the fire. And because they cared about me, they said, no, you are stuck with me until this moment passes because I can't stand to see you get burned. So that's the first two categories. And then the third one is this idea that there's sometimes sin that is so infectious that just being around a person runs us into the danger of picking up this infection. So once again, Jude's probably talking about the false teachers for sure, but then also the people in the church who were following them. And if you remember from previous sermons, the lifestyle that was proceeding from these false teachers was a deeply immoral one. 
just a blatantly sinful lifestyle. I think you hear Paul write about similar things other places. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 5 where he's confronting someone in the church who was in a blatantly incestuous relationship. And Paul says, actually, you need to hand this guy over to Satan, uh, which I think is just the idea of excommunication. And then he says, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. This is, I think, Jude riffing on this theme. There are times we need to let people feel the full consequence of their sin and need to let them see that where they are is seeping into others, not because we are trying to write them off or cancel them, to use today's language, uh, but because to go back to Paul so that their spirit may be saved, so they can experience mercy. So this is what Jude's talking about, and he's not mincing words. So Jude says even their garments are soiled. It's probably worth noting that the word there for soiled or filthy is excrement. And if you go back to Zechariah 3, which we read earlier, it's the same term that's used there. And the word for clothes has to do with undergarments. So Jude is actually saying, this, this is how um, infected you are. You're like crap-filled underwear. And that's Jude's image, not mine. Just, just to be clear, don't anybody email me. That's what the Bible says. Because Jude is trying to make clear, you need to understand the significance of this. So this raises an interesting point. If this kind of sin and this kind of teaching that led to it are that disgusting, how can it possibly be dangerous? Because let's say I'm walking down the street and I see crap-filled underwear. I get nowhere close to there. There's nothing appealing about it. Here, I think, is why false teachers are so dangerous is because we don't actually see it as disgusting, which might seem hard to believe considering the analogy, but that's what Jude has been saying for the whole uh, book so far, the whole chapter. These wolves don't slip into the fold because they look like wolves. They look like sheep. These hidden reefs are hidden. They're not above the water. If we'd see them above the water, we'd avoid them. And the imagery that's there, you know, the, the rainless clouds, clouds look good and promising, especially if you need rain. And then it turns out they don't have rain. So the whole book has been, you need to be careful. There's, there's a almost a brilliant kind of devious deception going on, the things that are actually this bad, um, crappy underwear, look like something that's compelling. So I was trying to think of modern examples of this. So I want to talk about vampires for a second, so st stick with me here. Uh, so the original Dracula book written by Bram Stoker, is, Stoker was actually a deeply Christian book. I have a link in here if you're interested, but if you simply Google this, you'll find out that Bram Stoker's book was a very clear good versus evil and that Dracula is not presented as a compelling or exciting or beautiful figure at all. It's very much what we would today probably call a spiritual warfare kind of book in some ways. But Hollywood managed to change this, as Hollywood does, and began to take the image of the vampire and make vampires very kind of alluring and sexy. And so kind of the horror of them now is that even if we know they're terrible, we're somehow drawn to them, at least in the stories. We know they're monstrous, and yet they're kind of beautiful. This is what Stephanie Myers did with the Twilight series. Bella is drawn to these vampires because they glitter in the sun. Right? They look really beautiful and cool, and the reality is, if you read the series to the end, it doesn't really end well. And there's a reason that the cover of the Twilight books have somebody holding an apple. It's the oldest temptation. 
that something that is not good for you at all actually looks really good. And this, I think, is what Jude's talking about. Uh, I was listening to some songs from Taylor Swift's latest album. So we get vampires and Taylor Swift today. Don't judge me. Um, and she has an interesting song called Illicit Affairs, which, as you might suspect by the title, is about illicit affairs. And it's not a song glorifying them. I mean, she talks about how this illicit affair that begins in a beautiful room ends in parking lots. That the words that you hear early on that are so exciting, eventually they stop working. They're like a drug that loses its high. She talks about how the perfume and nicknames that were once sweet become really bitter. And here's the chorus. And that's the thing about illicit affairs and clandestine meetings and stolen stares. They show their truth one single time, but they lie and they lie and they lie a million little times. And you know darn well, she says to this person, for you, I would ruin myself a million little times. It's not a song praising illicit affairs. It's a song acknowledging what it does to you. And I think, honestly, this is the imagery in Jude. This is what sin does, and it's what false teachers do. They lie, and they lie, and they lie a million little times, and it ruins us. And yet, somehow, if we're not careful, we're drawn to it, even though we know that it's ruining us. I've often thought about this in terms of entertainment. I feel like the, the most devious entertainment for Christians is not entertainment that shows sin for what it is, where we actually see it and go, that's disgusting and terrible and I want nothing to do with it. It's the entertainment that is far more subtle and makes it kind of glittery and nice and appealing. It's why, frankly, I think Breaking Bad is a better show than Titanic. Because Breaking Bad showed you the badness toward which the main character was breaking, and there was no way you could look at it and find it appealing. Whereas movies like Titanic, and you can email me later if you disagree, movies like Titanic make sin very glittery and appealing. And I think they hold far more danger to Christians than the others that are at least honest. But okay, entertainment's a whole different sermon. So here we are with the church, and we look around, and now this third category is people whose presence is glittery and appealing, but the reality is it's uh, crap-filled diapers of sin, and we just don't see it because these monstrous things can look really good depending on how the light shines. And so Jude's warning us we might be deceived, and we might not recognize it, and we might not realize what is kind of oozing out from us into those around us. So... The pastors and commentaries that I read, they said when Jude says show mercy here, the one clear thing is pray for them. The one clear thing is pray for them. Um, we can beg God on their behalf. We intercede. Because once again, we're not interested in writing them off and pointing them towards hell. We're interested in bringing them to salvation. So we intercede to God for his mercy in their life, and honestly, I think it probably transforms how we think and feel about them. But I think mercy goes beyond that because mercy is not just a vague theory. Mercy is something that we practically experience. And so even for people who are in that situation, I think it's important that we find a way, as is appropriate, to pursue them just like we did the people that we were snatching out of the fire. So this word fear Jude uses, it, it's not this idea of we're trembling and terrified of this person. It really just means be significantly cautious. And, and I think what Jude is talking about is, 
If there is someone that you see in this blatant sin that has now become toxic, if you personally wrestle with kind of being drawn to that particular sin, you might be the person who prays for them from a distance because for you to try to get close could take you down too and you know yourself and your weaknesses and your frailties. And yet, there will be somebody who God will send very close to them. Even if it's not you, it might be somebody else. Or you might find a different person where you go, okay, I I see that for what it is and I am not drawn to that. I can get close to that person. I can walk with them very closely. I will try to pull them from the fire hands on. Whereas some of us might be uh, seeing a drowning person out there and we're just throwing out the little flotation device that keeps them up till another lifeguard gets there. Does that kind of make sense, the distinction I'm making? That we have to be wise? Um, I, I was talking with someone. Well, okay, I'll, I'll broaden this out a little bit. There is a Christian ministry that ministers to people in the porn industry. And they minister very closely to people in the porn industry. Let me tell you, that ministry is not for everyone. In fact, I think it's not for 99.9% of us. I think probably God gifted a couple particular people who could walk into the fire and snatch people from it in a way that nobody else can. So part of what we're praying for with wisdom is when we see situations, we are praying, we're asking God, and we're probably asking people around us, man, I want to go to this person and minister to them because they need Jesus, and we exercise wisdom lest we get pulled into the very thing we are trying to save people from. And this is where I like a comment from a guy named Douglas Moo on this particular passage in Jude. He says, yet even here, God's wondrous grace can exchange the excrement-covered garments for festive garments of righteousness. No one, not even the most defiled sinner, is beyond salvation through faith in Christ's redeeming work. And so that's where we land in this is the grace of God. And one thing I love about these two verses is that each verse is full of hope. No matter what category you're in, God doesn't write you off, and the church is not called to write you off. So brief summary. If if I start at the beginning and go through these verses, here's what Jude is calling us to do to step into these situations. First of all, be kind. (laughs) Don't be a jerk right? Don't call people's names or bully them. They're wavering. This is the wavering category. Be nice. Give them God's truth with an arm around their shoulders. The second thing then is we offer truth. You can do this while being kind, right? Because kindness isn't wimpy. Kindness can do really hard things. Kindness is about the attitude. How am I bringing this to somebody? Truth is about pointing them toward reality. So the second thing is offer the truth of God's word. The third thing is pursue them. Uh, We don't wait for drowning people to swim to us. We swim to them, right? And then finally, we show mercy even if it's tempered with caution. We can all pray, and like I said, I suspect this changes our attitude. We can pursue people even if it's a situation where we pull up six feet away and throw them a lifeline, right? Um, We can rescue the drowning by throwing them something to float on, and then as God calls us, we move in even more closely into particular situations. So kindness, truth, pursuit, and mercy. And I love this vision of community, and this is my final thought. First of all, 
What it suggests to me is that if you're in this room today and you're wavering, there's something about the Christian faith that you don't understand or you're wrestling with it, I hope that you experience our community as a place where you can go to someone and say, I'm wavering, and know that you're going to be met with kindness and mercy and grace and truth. Right? I mean, what's not to like about that? That's good stuff. But then you even get to where you're the vampire. What do God's people have for you? Well, you never lose hope. Because we are praying for you. That's one mercy we can pray for. We are, we are trying to pursue and pull you back from the fire. We are, as God gifts us and prepares us, we're still coming to you. We're still not asking drowning people to figure out how to swim better. We are going to them and teaching them what God has to say about the rescue that he offers so you never have to lose hope in a church community like that. that there might be times where there's some distance, right? There might be some quarantining, but it's not so that we reject you and write you off and cancel you. It's simply so that we let, as Paul says, to go back to his language, which was uh, so that our spirit can be saved on the day of the Lord, right? So I don't know where you are today, but can I just tell you that the, the kingdom of God and the community of the church is for you? That's God's plan for you to be ministered to in whatever um, whatever tier you're at, God is coming for you. God's people will too. Please be honest with us about where you're at so that we too can represent Christ to you. Lord, uh, I am grateful that even as your writers such as Jude um, challenge us with the sober reality of temptation and sin and where that can lead us, that you never just let us linger there. You always point us toward the hope of salvation, where your truth leads us, the forgiveness that you offer us in the midst of our repentance and the new lives that you make out of the old crappy underwear we bring. Lord, if that's not a message of hope, I don't know what is. May we, your people, represent you well so that your church is a glimpse into the glorious kingdom, both now and into eternity. Pray this in your name, amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.